0: Hello, I'm Ann Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Well, all right. Good afternoon, everyone. My name's Michael Williams. I'm the editor of The Monthly, and I'm thrilled to be here at Carriage Works for this very special Sydney Writers' Festival event. Uh, we're on the Gadigal Country... Uh, of the oration, we pay our respects to elders past and present. It is the anniversary of the Uluru Statement of the Heart uh, today, and um, it is worth remembering that that extraordinary, generous document that came out of that asked for three things: uh, it asked for voice, it asked for truth, and it asked for treaty. Let's not botch step one in the process, shall we, people? Now, this event uh, is happening in part with the support of Matthew and Fiona Playfair. Uh, Matthew and Fiona are staunch supporters of the festival. Excellent applause. That's what I like to hear. Uh, well deserved. They're staunch and long-standing supporters of the festival. And more than two years ago, I had a meeting with Matthew and met him for the first time. And we were in kind of deepest, darkest COVID. And he said, you know, when... When the borders open up again, when we can get international authors back in here, I've got just one request. We have to get Colson Whitehead. Um, and I couldn't do it, but the festival could, and he's here today. <laughs> A big round of applause to the extraordinary Colson Whitehead. He is a peerless and extraordinary writer. Um, I'm thrilled to be sharing a stage with him. He has that effect on people. Once you read him, you want to read more. And one of the wonderful tricks of Colson Whitehead is he's a man who never repeats himself. I mean, except for repeating himself, winning a Pulitzer, two books in a row. That's a bit of repetition there. So clearly got lazy somewhere down the line. Uh, That was, of course, for The Underground Railroad and then The Nickel Boys, both extraordinary novels. But each of his books hits the world at a different angle uh, that are unified by only one thing, and that is his extraordinary literary talent. Ladies and gentlemen, Colson Whitehead.
1: Yeah, howdy. It's, it's, it's great to be back at the festival, um, a new location. I'm always psyched to be uh, depressed in a new place than I've never been depressed in before. So uh, I'm glad to change it up. I mean, you've got a lot
0: to be depressed about. You were last here in 2017, and since then you appear to have just gone stratospheric from uh, kind of glorious success to glorious success. Surely now you're jaunty and smug rather than depressed.
1: Um, I takes a lot of energy actually
0: so... Yeah, no, I, I can see that would be tiring and a drain. Um, look... <laughs> <laughs> the, the great uh, kind of cliche of talking about your work is that thing that I led in with, that idea about difference from book to book. You do that to keep yourself interested, don't you?
1: Yeah, it, it, and generally when I'm done with something, I'm really, you know, tired of it. It's a long book, uh, very expansive, like John Henry Day's sort of early on or um, something very serious or some, something very light and I want to mix it up afterwards. So um, I think with... With Underground Railroad and Nickel Boys, it was rare for me to do two sort of serious uh, sober books back-to-back. So it's been nice with Harlem Shuffle to sort of break out of that mood and have more jokes per page than those two sort of more serious books.
0: Yeah, I I can only imagine. Uh, Oh, no, sorry, that's Crook Manifesto, uh, Carlson's next book. You can't read that. Um, (laughs) Harlem (laughs) Shuffle... Uh, on the other hand, is an extraordinary <laughs> novel that you can read and many of you will have read. It is a heist novel, and I want to know what drew you to that genre.
1: Really just, um, I was with my wife one day, and we were driving, and I was like, what am I going to rent tonight? I still like rent movies. And uh, I was thinking Ocean's Eleven again. How many times can I rent that? And I just love the heist genre, um, and I gave myself permission to you know, try it on my own. Um, the guys in my book aren't sort of well-dressed handsome people like uh, the people in Ocean's Eleven. I sort of go back to the more 50s and 60s early heist movies like Riffifi and Asphalt Jungle where things go wrong and they're definitely not as well-dressed by Armani as Brad Pitt and George Clooney. I I, want to pick up on heists in a moment, but
0: I'm interested in a phrase you said in passing that You gave yourself permission to do your own one. What's that process of giving yourself permission?
1: I think it's like a voice that says, like, should I, can I do that? You know, can I write a zombie novel? I have a zombie novel. I grew up wanting to write being inspired by horror movies and Stephen King and fantasy literature. So about, you know, 14 years ago, I wanted to write this, this horror novel. And as a literary writer, am I, am I supposed to do things, certain kind of books, not do other things? But of course, we're only here for a short time, so you do what you want, and um, I find myself periodically just giving myself permission to do what I actually want, and ignoring the voice in the back of my head that says, um, all those people who loved your tender coming-of-age story might not like the zombie thing. I'm,
0: I'm fascinated by the idea that you will quite literally Colson Whitehead, and you still feel the need to seek permission from yourself for these things. Surely, sure. surely <laughs> at some point, you've got a license,
1: no? Well, I think, you know, when that happens, it's like, that's the end. You oh, know. that's when right. you've got to stop. I think, I think fear is good. You know, I think fear keeps you honest. And uh, is this sentence the way I want it to be? This paragraph? The idea? Am I doing justice to the original concept for the book? So I think, you know, wrestling with all these different things is good for me and it keeps me honest and not slacking are you, are you
0: an anxious writer I mean do you get in your own head about the reader about the the kind of end product before you get there or is it is it a trial on a word sentence
1: paragraph uh, basis it's I mean on the on the on the day to day uh day to day thing of is this sentence right I think you, ha- you need like um I've been sort of having this idea about the James Bond dynamic Because James Bond, he always saves the world. He rakes the moon, the octopusy, whatever that was. He does all this stuff, and he pulls it off. And then he gets back to Britain, and then M is like, don't muck it up, Bond. You know, I think you need both voices, the (laughs) don't muck it up, Bond voice, and the, you know, I'm going to jujitsu and blow up the the mountain fortress. Um, So possibility, but also um, wondering if you could pull it off.
0: So... Does that mean, and I don't want to get too bogged down in the kind of process question, but does that mean that when you write, you're editing as you go along and you kind of try and get one constructed thing, or
1: do you kind of, I, I don't know, undo the parachute and let it go and then come back and tidy up? It's forward and back and forward and back. And so some people are like, oh, this novel has 57 drafts. I only know what that means. I mean, I can print out a copy, change a comma, and then print a co- another copy, and that's 58 drafts, you know. Um, for me i um I'm always going back and revising, so I'll write one pages one through five, revise one through two, write seven through eight um it's It's Christmas I have to engage with the family as a upstanding <laughs> relatable partner who's present um and so maybe on the plane I'll take out a manuscript and 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 revise the first uh seventy pages so if I realize something about a character or a plot point halfway through, I don't just keep going, I go back and change it. So if one day I'm like, what if the butler did it? Wouldn't that be a master stroke you know, plot point? Um, I'll go back to the first time he appears and like, he does this with his mustache very sinisterly and then go forward. I mean, I, I'm a big plotter, um, and, uh, but sometimes the, the last thing that, that comes in is like the voice. Like maybe around page 70, the dominating narrative voice finally congeals and comes together. So I'll go back to page one and bring everything before that up to the now dominant narrative voice. And so um, it's always forward and back and forward and back. I'm fascinated that the voice comes late.
0: So as a big plotter, is it a story arc you see in character at kind of arm's length and then you work out how to tell it?
1: It's really um, sort of item by item. Um, with the last few books, I've been glad that the voice has come quickly. But um, a heist novel, you know, who who's the main character? When is it? Where is it? Uh, sometimes the answers are very deliberate. Uh, sometimes they're random. The two books before Home Shuffle took place in the South, and I was like, I gotta get back to New York and find the Southern bullshit. And so, <laughs> where is New York? And then, when? Um, my first couple of books are very contemporary so not something set in the present. But I did so much heavy lifting with those historical novels, I don't want to go too far back. So, you know, 50s, 60s. And then who's the main character? Um, I had a heist story. So is it the 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 ringleader, the planner, the wheelman, And I so on the fence, the sort of unsung uh, person. I'm not sure if actually there are other fence novels. Uh, there's a lot of Nonfiction, not actually not a lot, but two books about fences I found. And, uh, um, and that gave me a, some, some grounding on who my hero might be. I,
0: I want to get to the question of why a fence is a hero in a sec, but before that, you've uh, outlined the kind of key criteria of going into any heist, which is to get your crew together. Who would you be in a heist? Where, where do your skills lie?
1: Oh, um... I don't know. I, I'm sort of, as the plotter, I'm sort of multitasking. And definitely writing these books, I do see things in a certain a different way. If I'm on the highway, I'm like, oh, that'd be a good place to dump a body. Or, you know, <laughs> um, so I, I, uh, yeah, I think I, I, I'm more, I think more the master planner or uh, demolitions. You know, like, oh, that's
0: a fun role. You know, blow Which the save or something like that. Yeah. yeah, okay, good. Not the wheel, man.
1: Uh, actually, I just got my license last fall. so, um, But now I feel very confident. I, I, I mean, sort of, I drive like an old lady, like sort of like, and like also with Ray Leota and Goodfellas, sort of coked out, you know, always looking around. So uh, my relationship to... <laughs> the wheelman genre is really theoretical.
0: I, I like that you've confessed when you go around you're looking for where to dump a body. I'd like to be clear, that's just hypothetical, so any narcs in the audience, don't take that to the authorities. That's not helpful. They, but having a fence at the centre of a heist story is unusual because the fence always is kind of, or generally, is outside that main crew. They're, um, as the name would suggest, they're the kind of line between... Uh, polite society, and criminality. They're the one that kind of uh, acts as the go-between. And they're often a bit of a shit.
1: Yes, I mean, I hate the character of the fence. You know, they are the, guys we've been following for 200 pages or 45 minutes. They pull off the heist. Half the guys are dead. They're crawling out, you know, of the bank. And they go to the fence with their $2 million in jewels. And the fence says, I'll give you 10 cents on a dollar. I'm like, I hate that guy. He should be the hero of my book. I mean, my, I wrote a book about growing up in the 80s, a the coming-of-age novel, and I was like, I hated being a teenager. Why don't I write about being a teenager? So it's this, this weird perverse thing that Is it drives because me. you're looking
0: for redemption for these kind of
1: categories of society you
0: hate? Like, do you write to kind of find the humanity in, uh, in sectors of society that you're sceptical about?
1: Um, that seems more sort of highfalutin <laughs> than... than uh, <laughs> <laughs> just my perverse desire to inhabit people who are not like me and then trying to figure out what makes them tick. I'll, I'll
0: scale back the, the pompous <laughs> justification.
1: You're just perverse.
0: <laughs> that, that makes sense to me. So tell us about Ray Carney, because he is not a fence cut from the kind of cloth that you're describing. He is a deeply, I think, sympathetic protagonist.
1: I hope so. I mean, um, I knew I wanted somebody who uh, is sort of moonlighting uh, and maybe... Grappling with his criminal side. And so, uh, one thing I got from those sociological examinations of fences was that a lot of them will have a, a front business where they sell legit merchandise, and in the back of the room, the back of the stores, where they do other illegal stuff. And that spoke to a divided nature, the divided psychology. So, that became the foundation for him. Um, I wanted someone who was not as. Um, controlled by their social circumstances, and definitely the main characters in Underground Railroad and Nickel Boys are um, being controlled by these larger uh, racist systems. So I wanted someone who can, who can win, but not all the time, but someone who can outwit the system in a way that the main characters in those two previous books cannot. So like I was saying before, when I'm done with something, I want to do something different. I wanted a, a new character and not um, someone who's very different from Cora in Underground and Alden Turner and the Nickel Boys. So the, the book Harlem Shuffle is divided into
0: three, essentially three novellas, three kind of capers uh, in the life across about a decade of Ray Carney, 1959, 61 and then 64, Of uh, these kind of three intervals in his life. What was it about that period in particular that felt right? for the kind of story you wanted to tell?
1: Well, I think, again, it was sort of accidental. I knew I wanted to be after World War II. Um, I was trying to think of what New York event my heisters could exploit. So the blackout of 77, the, you know, that's uh, a good place to do a big robbery. Um, I thought of the the riots in the early 40s. There was a, uh, a woman who was abused by a, a white policeman. The city... Uh, was in shambles for a week, but it's also the centerpiece of Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, and I have the gumption to (laughs) tackle tackle that. Uh, And so, 64, there's another uh, moment where um, a young black boy was killed by a white policeman, the city's in chaos, and I thought that would be good. And then I started writing it, or outlining it, and I thought I didn't want to exploit that tragedy. So instead, it takes place the week after the riot, when... The city's in this sort of in-between place. It's traumatized by the, the week of fires and violence. And a new version is coming into being. So that seemed like a cool moment. And then three novellas happened because a 300-page heist novel seemed like, I felt kind of thin. <laughs> kind of thin. And so um, and I kept coming up with more adventures for Carney and maybe not straight-up heists, but a revenge story. Um, and so it became three books in one. But it also allows for a kind of progression
0: in Carney's sense of himself and his sense of his own relationship to criminality or crookedness. One of the, one of the threads through it is the idea of the strivers versus the crooks. Can you talk about the idea of being a striver?
1: Uh, well, you know, striving is, um, you know, you're trying to enter that middle-class dream. There's a famous set of streets in Harlem called Strivers Row. Um, that's where the good people live. Um, it's been that way for you know, 80 years. Um, uh, the good doctors, uh, the lawyers, the accountants. Um, and then, then you go you know, five blocks south and you're in that sort of, um, depending on the decade, dilapidated Harlem. But those are people who are trying to uh, work within a system. And then of course criminals um, are outside the system. Uh, they have their own morality uh, which is just as, uh, just as fierce. Um, uh, some people believe they can work within a system and rise, and then some people reject that notion, and those are the, those are the, the crooked people, and the word crooked uh, comes up a lot in the story. A crucial
0: character in luring Ray into this uh, temptation of criminality is his cousin Freddie. And that dynamic between them, uh, between the person who is perhaps the troublemaker and the person who uh, maybe knows better but always goes along with it, it seems like an interesting tension. Which kind of kid were you? Were you a Freddie or a Ray?
1: Oh, I was definitely a Ray. And, um, you know, looking back, my earlier novels, all my protagonists are are loners, sort of isolates, um, independent operators. And then with the last couple of books, they've had... Family members and friends, and and um, close relationships, and definitely Nickel Boys is animated by the friendship between Elwood and Turner, um, those opposites who um, overlap and repel each other and come back together, and then it, it's also part of um, of Harlem Shuffle around the the same time. My brother, who's you know very close to my age, uh, was a uh, drinking himself to death, and I was sort of processing his decline and. We both came from the same place, but we went, up, went in different directions. Um, and I was thinking about what makes one person uh, figure out or adapt to a system, and what makes a person not figure it out. And that's in the Nickel Boys and in Harlem Shuffle. So um, I guess as my own, as I'm, there's more of my, as I get older, and more more, more of my life starts to populate my books. You know, I, I start to. Uh, have different kinds of tensions uh, than I had in my earlier days.
0: Is that right? Are you finding yourself putting more of your own life in your books as you get older?
1: Uh, to different degrees. I mean, um, I think, as I understand myself more and the world more, I think that makes the books richer. Um, becoming a parent, uh, stuff like good stuff like that. Um, I overlap with Ray Carney and that idea that the next apartment will cure me. You know, if I can just figure out the, the, the right block and the right sunlight, uh, the southern exposure, uh, it will all work out. And then I move in, and I'm like, there's no closets again? How do I do this? You know, I keep doing this, there's no closets. Uh, what's that rumbling? I'm over the subway? You know, that always happens. Um, but Underground, underground Railroad, um, I think the main character, Cora, is the least like me, there's nothing of me in her, which is probably why it's the most popular of, of the books. So.
0: <laughs> I like this
1: audience already love you, clearly, but you can't
0: win over a Sydney audience more than saying that a quest for self-knowledge happens through real estate. They're all just <laughs> like this, they're, <so, laughs> yeah. they're writing it in their notepads now. He is our man. He yes. gets
1: it. No, cities are you know, the same all over. You know, my, my book about New York, The Colossus of New York, it was really about just places you love and the way that you're always walking around in a big city or a small city or Melbourne, Sydney or New York, and superimposing that old shoe store over the multiplex or the Starbucks, and you're always like, oh, that used to be so-and-so, and we're always walking around uh, with the, the ghost of that former city and the ghost of ourselves, you know. Mm. It's, um, it, it's one of the things that I so
0: love in this novel, actually, and it's clear that Harlem is a place that means a lot to you and haunts you in various different ways, that overlay and that churn and the different times. Can you talk to us a bit about
1: Harlem? I recall from Harlem because I I just love all the neighbourhoods in the city, even the crappy ones that no one wants to live in, like the uncoolest neighbourhood, like Turtle Bay, which is like 30s on the east side, like no one wants to live there. And I'm always like, ah, there's a grocery store, there's a dry cleaners, you know, whenever I'm driving around, you know. um, So I am grafting my 20s Brooklyn onto Harlem. Um, I'm taking my, my first six years of my life when I lived in Harlem and recalling, recalling that. I'm taking my days downtown and putting it onto Harlem. So for me, it's just that, that the whole New York organism, and it happens to be Harlem because it's a black crime novel, and then it can either only be Harlem or you know, parts of Brooklyn. The, um, the decision to have the sixty 64- four
0: riots be part of it has particular resonance because part of Ray's, uh, central to Ray's identity is the veneer of respectability and he is a shop owner and uh, the shop's very important to him and so that uh, has a big impact on how he personally responds to the riots, what his relationship with them is. Um, I feel like, you know, I, I... trust you and would follow you just about anywhere now I reckon on the page but I now feel like if you tried to sell me some mid-century furniture I would buy it from you did you did you do a deep dive in research into that or is that just a secret passion of Colson Whitehead
1: um it was you know all you know books are in some way a journey of self-discovery I discovered I have a weird fetish for mid-century modern furniture um which is perhaps evident um I needed, you know, Fence needs a real legit store, so I thought furniture. Um, For research, you know, if you go to Pinterest, no matter what you like or into, somebody else has put it up on Pinterest. So there are 1950s catalogs, furniture catalogs from the 60s, and I would just sort of steal language um, to make uh, Ray believable. And, you know, you want him to be believable whether he's an elevator inspector, as in my first novel, or a zombie cleanup guy in my zombie novel. Um, And so uh, you want to get it right. And I think, looking back, you know, as someone who was raised by TV and sitcoms, uh, old Twilight Zone episodes and a Brady Bunch, those sleek, modern silhouettes are like my first furniture. You know, those are my er furniture. Uh, I like how quickly you creep <laughs> into salesman language sleek <laughs> modern silhouettes gazelle arms I seem
0: to remember at some point
1: sure yes uh, you yeah, know the lovely wing backs and the champagne finishes yeah. and all that stuff
0: and I can see you're really deep
1: <laughs> you're deep in this world I like it
0: um you mentioned that uh, the three kind of capers in the book aren't all conventional heists, but the one that opens it is an absolute cracker in the kind of uh, heist mode, and it takes place in what is referred to as the Waldorf of, um, of Harlem. Can you tell us a little bit about that site
1: for a robbery, why it took your fancy? Sure. Well, I mean, so I have, I have a character now, I have a setting, I have a year... Um I actually don't know much about Harlem history, so I'm doing research. Uh, The Hotel Teresa keeps coming up, and it was a whites-only hotel from when um, uh, Harlem was a white neighborhood. Uh, Harlem was farmland in the mid-19th century. Real estate speculators put up buildings for uh, clientele renters who didn't exist yet. And the first people were immigrants from Germany, Ireland, Italy, Jewish immigrants from all over Europe who came to make it. And then they leave Harlem, enter the middle class, move to the suburbs or downtown. Uh, there's a migration of black people north, and uh, they're sort of, sort of churning. And I sort of lost the thread of your first question. <laughs> Why the Hotel Teresa? And the Hotel Teresa. So I have to, so the uh, it's a white-only hotel, has to desegregate in the in the... In the, in the 40s, and allow uh, black people, because it's a black neighborhood now, um, and uh, if you're a black celebrity, it was the only place that you could really stay, um, and, and in a nice place, and so Joe Lewis, um, Cab Calloway, uh, all these different folks would go and stay there, uh, the ink spots, various musicians, actors, uh, Castro, when he came to the United States, did a a rally outside. JFK, when he was running, had a rally outside the Hotel Teresa. And it seemed, it kept coming up in these uh, Harlem historical uh, books I was reading, and it just seemed like a perfect place to rob for my guys, uh, especially if you're a sort of an antisocial character who resents the black elite and all these black northerners. You're from the South, uh, like Miami Joe, one of the heisters. What better way to get revenge upon all these hoity-toity northern Negroes than to, than to rob the ho- their beloved Hotel Teresa. And now it's just like an office building, it's totally... Um, that must have been disappointing because it
0: must have meant you couldn't go and case the joint to understand the logistics physically. Yeah, how did you it's, do it's, that? What did you read to understand how someone might make a smash and grab?
1: Um, there was a, a robbery at the Pierre Hotel in 1973, so that was my model. Um, they, if you have valuables, uh, I guess before they had little safes in everybody's room, they had safe deposit boxes behind reception in certain, certain big hotels. And there was a robbery where they took a sledgehammer, um, you know, tied up all the people who were there in a the late shift and pried open the safety deposit boxes. And um, that's how I figured it out. How
0: much was this book and the approach to it, the research, everything else, a product of COVID, a book that had to happen out of research on the page and a kind of energy and vibe from the pop culture of your youth and that kind of thing?
1: Well, I, I when COVID hit, I only had like 60, 60 pages to go, so I was on a downward slope. Um, and uh, I'm laughing because I, I was talking to my wife. and I said, oh, I have you know, three days left in Australia. I'm on the downward spiral, but I meant downward slope. <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, so it was a downward slope of, uh, of, um, of the book. And so... The downward spiral <laughs> is a very grim cold hunt. Yeah, yes, it's very... Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Um, uh, the second book, you know, Quick Manifesto, is definitely a, uh, a COVID-era book because I, I started right after finishing Harlem Shuffle and a lot of my research is just walking around Harlem. Uh, It's very big, and I was trying to find different avenues and streets I'd never been on before, uh, places to rob, places to dump bodies, places where people live. And uh, New York, you know, was was very hard hit. Um, The streets were empty. It was just me and my mask. Uh, No place to stop to eat. Um, And it's a very different city than the one I sort of recognized. And um, and the the second book takes place in the 1970s. so I was doing research about living in the 70s then, and a lot of the language uh, was sort of like the same. Uh, New York in the 70s, there was a fiscal crisis. Um, uh, the city was broke. And I felt, you know, whatever, 40 years later, I was back in that kind of 70s thing. Looking back at that period in New York, it was a time of great creativity. It was the birth of punk and disco and hip-hop, uh, New York salsa... So the city was at a very low ebb, but writers and artists and musicians were coming together to make something new. And looking back, I felt like, you know, eventually the, uh, the pandemic passed in its first incarnation and moved into a new stage. Um, and no one says, like, New York is dead anymore because New York came back like it always does. So, so definitely the second book is, you know, has that spirit of, Executing something in the midst of a crisis.
0: That idea about the change of cities and their resilience and and churn runs through the book. And the idea of churn is something Ray talks about in terms of items and and being a fence in terms of buying and selling things and the churn of money and the churn of the way in which things move. And uh, there's something kind of liberating in that idea for him. Um, Is that... Is that something that excites you, that idea of, of that kind of change and the, the layers of a city, of a place?
1: No, I mean, I, I, mean, I feel like a, I'm actually not a very animated person, but I do get animated when I talk about that churn. And in the book, it is the churn of stolen property and the churn of envelopes. People are bribing each other. And then also that uh, when I was talking about the ebb and flow of, of generations, uh, that kind of churn, if you pull back, um, there are all these different kinds of systems, uh, and things are being laid low and coming back. Uh, the city's laid low in the 70s and comes back in the 80s um, in the time of uh, the Wall Street uh, frenzy. Um, the new Harlem is gentrified now, you know, sort of devastated by various drug periods and, and the fiscal crisis, and now it's a very different sort of corporate place. Um, 125th Street is filled with The Gap and Starbucks and the same brand you see everywhere. And the young white people who are gentrifying the place, you know, some of them are the great great grandkids of those first immigrants. And, you know, when I step back and look at my city in that kind of way, I really, um, uh, I do get very proud to be there and, you know, proud to be a part of it in my own little way. Coming back to where we
0: started the chat with the kind of impact of, Um, of readers on successive works and the way in which winning the Pulitzers, the kind of expectation around your work that comes out of books like Nickel Boys or Underground Railroad. I'm interested in how comfortable you are in being understood as or seen as a kind of writer of big social injustice and uh, because that's certainly a big part of your reputation at this point. And so even writing a heist novel, The Temptation... For readers, is to read in okay? Well, this is this is allegory, and this is a story about the nature of power and the nature of race and the way in which Ray's in laws uh, judge him because of class and colorism and all of this stuff. Do you do you feel a burden of that stuff, or does that just is that a natural passion that kind of comes through the work?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't think you a black writer has to write about race. I think you should write about whatever you want to. Life is short. Um, in my case, i uh, everyone what, A lot of books where race is not... In my case, race is not actually important. I have a zombie novel uh, where race is not a factor because apparently racism is not important when 99.5% of the population is dead. Um, That's kind (laughs) of... Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, My book about New York um, has chapters on rush hour in Central Park, and it's not black rush hour. It's just rush hour. Um, So... um, I write about race in New York City, and uh, I like to have humor, my absurd, absurd humor in there, but they can't always be there. So I write about a lot of different topics. And definitely in terms of the burden or just really the expectation, um, those are other people's expectations. You know, I just try to not fuck it up. You know, going back to what we were saying earlier, that's my mission. It's, that's a cool idea. Don't fuck it up, Colson. And... Um, And other people, also, because I do switch genres, I'm always losing and gaining people. And so I wrote a book about poker, and some people don't want to read it because Uncle Ben gambled their college savings away. Uh, People like the historical sweep of Underground Railroad and don't care about crime novels. And so people are always being disappointed. By the next thing, I'm used to that. Um, I'm perfectly happy to keep doing these different things because they're for me. And do you feel there's
0: stuff you can't give yourself permission for? I mean, I know that earlier in your career, the one thing you wanted to do was write Spider Man. Do you still want to write Spider Man? And would you give yourself
1: permission? Um, well, you know, when you write a comic book, you work with the artist and you know the editors and various people, uh, the letterer, a letter who writes you know the the captions. I actually don't like um, people. I don't like uh, (laughs) interacting with them, really. And so now that I'm older and know that, I wouldn't want to work on a comic book. You did
0: mention the 70s as this period of of kind of creation in New York, particularly of new musical genres. And I know music's really important to you when you write. You listen to it all the time. Uh, Did you, for the writing of this, go, okay? it has to be period appropriate? I'm going to immerse myself in the sounds of kind of 50s, 60s New York?
1: No, no. Um, uh, I wish, you know, I listen to the same thing I always do, which is like The Misfits and Sonic Youth and Daft Punk and Public Enemy and uh, basically just my playlist of work is 3,000 songs I like. Um, You know, Ray Carney is not a cool guy he's not listening to you know the, the cool new bebop of the late 50s, early 60s, that's more of Freddie. In the 70s section, it would be cool if Ray Carney was like hanging out at Max's Kansas City or something and, and doing coke with Iggy Pop, but he's a big square, and uh, I couldn't really shoehorn in um, the first Ramones record or stuff like that in there, so. We'll take a question over here. Yeah. Hi, Colson. Um, There's a thesis that the Cuban Revolution and also Castro's stay in
0: Harlem actually kick-started the civil rights movement. Do you think there's any validity in the thesis, or do you think it's just the usual thing of white people taking um, credit for successful black movements?
1: Uh, That happens a lot, the latter thing. Um, But from what I understand, the civil rights movement uh, predates the days of Castro. You know, it's, uh, I would say, you know, World War I is the first time we start getting the start of that activism, uh, 40s and 50s, so it predates Castro, I never heard the theory, but everybody's got, got to sell a book, so. But it is true that white
0: people talk black people about jazz, it was in the film La La Land. yes, yes yes, yes,
1: yes, yes,
0: you, yes. You do need to know that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there is a question from Haley in at the Gloucester CWA, and Haley asks, "I'm curious about how you fictionalised some of your lived experience. Do you ever get any backlash from family and friends who know you've drawn from personal experience?"
1: Sure, uh, my book Sag Harbor, you know, uh, was important for me in my career. It's about growing up in the '80s, and you know, I'm a version of me in there, and my family and, and friends. Um, uh, I thought it was important, after being very remote in my fiction, to have you know, some sort of skin in the game and uh, not be as uh, distanced. So it was important for me as a person and as a writer to do this more uh, semi-autobiographical work, and that's how I described it when it came out. It's like semi-autobiographical. Now I say autobiographical because it turns out nobody who's in it read it, and they're all half of them are dead. So <laughs> in the end, it was really irrelevant. Uh, uh, the fact of, you know, wondering what they would think about it because no-one bothers to read my stuff if you know me really well. <laughs> and Haley, if you're asking as a writer yourself, that's the answer. Wait till your friends and family are dead.
0: Yes, um, yeah. Would be good. There's a question over here. Hi, Colson. Um, I was interested to hear your reactions to the TV series of Underground Railroad and also for a film version of your heist book, Would it be Scorsese, Tarantino, or Spike Lee?
1: Sure, yeah. Um, uh, Barry Jenkins, famous director, uh, expressed interest in adapting Underground Railroad before um, he got famous with Moonlight. And uh, I saw the film in an advanced version. I was like, yes, please do it. I knew it would be good. I know how great it would be. You know, I think I sort of thought... The book is my thing, and and whatever he does will be fine, you know. Um, But he really sort of, you know, knocked it out of the park. It blew me away. I was very moved that someone could understand the book so deeply, and also his whole crew. Uh, One of the things I did before COVID came down was go to visit the set in Atlanta, Georgia, and they have been working on on it for three years, like 120 people, uh, building the sets and... um, sewing the costumes, I met all those people, the guy who does like the period haircuts with the tiny parts, uh, the guy who sweeps up the, the dirt between takes so there's no footprints uh, for, for the new take. And they're all, you know, had such a love for the book and, under, and were very passionate about it I was very moved. And when I finally saw it, you know, I was watching with my wife, I was like, is that, you know, is this actually happening? It's so, so wild. One thing I don't see when I write or the people's faces, and if you notice, I don't describe people's faces because I hate it and it's really boring. Um, and then I would see each person, I'm like, yes, that exactly is, that's them. Um, and a lot of the cast, there's people I hadn't seen before, and I was like, wow, they really found Mabel, they found Cora. So it's pr- pr- profoundly moving for me, it means that any, any other adaptation cannot be as good. So I like to find like the, the sad side of everything that's good. So I'll put that in there. It's a very healthy um, <laughs> psychological outlook. Oh, then then in terms of Harlem Shuffle, I'm not sure. I mean, all those people are really important to me in different phases. Um, I, I'm excited by Scorsese's like late period uh, uh, sort of renaissance. I'm excited to see his new movie. So,
0: the, the, I heard an interview with you where uh, you were telling a story about the. Um, song that plays over the closing credits of the first episode of Underground Railroad.
1: Um. So I have this playlist and, it's, uh, you know, 3,000 songs I like. And the end of the, fir- and the songs that play over the credits are not necessarily historically appropriate. You know, it's contemporary music. And the song that sort of blasts at the last scene of the first episode is B.O.B. by Outcast, which is one of my top 20 songs. And I, you know, definitely I was writing different scenes of the book to that song. And I was like, how'd you know? How'd you know? And like, there's like, oh, it just seemed right. So, um. There's something eerie about that. I yeah, like yeah, that yeah. story. Uh, we have a question
0: from Liz in Wagga. And, uh, Liz asks, have you become a historical novelist
1: accidentally? Well, I mean, I. Uh, my first, a lot of my first books were very contemporary. They're much about living in the 90s and the aughts and uh, contemporary life. And I got to a moment when I was planning a book about. A middle aged guy, writer in Brooklyn, writing about the death of newspapers and the information age. I was like, how have I just fucking done this before? Like, you know, and so I figure I had run out of things to say about uh, contemporary life. So I should just shut the fuck up and find something else to write about. I found inspiration in historical, different historical periods. I can't rely on my postmodern voice, because it doesn't work for, not about slavery. I can't rely on my irony and satire, because it doesn't necessarily work when you're writing about Jim Crow or slavery. So I've been pushed to not rely on the things I I knew I could do, that I thought I could do well, and it's been, I think, good for the work. Um, I may write something contemporary again. I may not. I'm not sure. Uh, Just on that, how much
0: burden... There's that word burden again. It's because you said you were depressive. I'm thinking burden now and everything. Um, But how much pressure do you feel for kind of verisimilitude to kind of make sure you research so that, you know, they're drinking the thing they would have been drinking, that the slang is appropriate to the period? Like, does that change the way you approach writing because there's a checklist that you have to follow?
1: Well, I mean, if you are going for something realistic, you want to get it right, you know, The Intuitionist, my first book, takes place in an allegorical New York City, and there's no real sort of proper nouns in that book. It's, it's uh, an alternative New York, and so uh, it is very distanced. Uh, Zone One, the zombie novel, takes place in a kind of utopian New York, because uh, everyone's dead, so there's no line for taxis or in the supermarket or anything, <laughs> and that's an alternative New York. And then um, I wanted to get it right for, for this book, and so that means, yes, like my grandfather, who owned a f- series of funeral homes in New Jersey and was a well-to-do businessman. I have an ad of him uh, where it's like, Colson Woody drinks Rheingold beer. They're trying to get, like, black people to drink Rheingold beer. So Rheingold beer appears. Um, I was, I wanted to get it right, and, uh, but in a good way. It, was not, it's not, it wasn't a burden. It's more, I wanted it to be accurate and not get letters. Um, and I would do all this research, you know, discover the Hotel Teresa, and then tell my mother, who was living in Harlem as a young newlywed in the 60s, like, did you ever hear the Hotel Teresa and the chalk full of nuts, this coffee chain on the first floor? And she's like, yeah, I went there every day because I worked around the corner, you know, what's the big deal? Um, so I should have just asked her. I, I like that it took you a bit of the process before you, like, there are people in my life who were
0: there. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. I prefer to Google, unfortunately, so. It's that sad moment of parenting when your kids turn to Google rather than to you. <laughs> yeah, you yes. definitely
1: feel it. It comes around. I've learned it myself. Yeah, same. Uh,
0: I'm fascinated by this concept of Dove in Harlem Shuffle. Um, do you practice it? And uh, can you just elaborate on how you came across it?
1: Sure. I mean, you know, I'm always uh, coming across articles. I'm like, oh, maybe I'll use that one day. So I read it about segmented sleep, Uh, Dorfay, uh Um, And before we had electric lights, you know, some of us had a sleeping rhythm where nightfall comes, you've been working in the farm all day, in the fields or whatever, and you go to sleep, but your body wakes you up around midnight or something, and you're up for two hours, and then you go to sleep again. It was very common, and and it's documented in Shakespeare and various uh, historical documents, but we sort of forgot about it. So I was like, huh, maybe I'll use that one day and you know, bookmarked the article on Slate or New York Times Magazine. And then writing, you know, I'm trying to convey the criminal lifestyle from the outside and it seemed that Dorvay described prime time, crime time, which is my, I couldn't, it's it too dumb a phrase to use in a book, but it worked for me. Um, you know, that Time, 11, a, 11 p.m. to 2 a.m. The only people up are criminals, alcoholics, insomniacs, and writers. And I've definitely overlapped with some of those you know, categories, different moments. And um, so it's seemed a good metaphor to talk about this segment, this time in Carney's life when he's uh, planning this scheme and, and up when no one else is around. So um, I've had a few periods when I've kept weird hours, definitely jet lag. You know, I will wake up like, oh, my God, it's 1 a.m. What am I going to do? And then luckily I have a lot of things to downward spiral about uh, for a couple of hours in my bed. A lot of crimes to
0: plan as well. Um, There's a question from the State Library of uh, Western Australia. Why did it take you so long to get your driver's license and you now own a car?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I live in New York, so I just took the subway. Or, you know, I think most terrible things in life could be cured by um, hailing a cab. That's my, my experience. Just hop in a cab and you're out of there. Um, so I took driver's out as a kid, but never got the license. And then my poor wife, after you know 11 years of her angrily muttering about going to the store, taking the kids to camp, you know, like, I do the cooking, she gets the groceries, but I mean, it's driving, yada, yada, yada. So I was like, It finally sunk in that I can be a good partner by doing this. Um, So, yeah, it's been cool. We we had a car. I never drove it. I was always, like, a good navigator. And now um, I find this great moment when you get into the car. It's just you, and you have to go somewhere, and you you kind of sigh. And I sit there for 30 seconds. I'm really enjoying that. (laughs) It's just... uh, (laughs) (laughs) Like, other people do that too, right? They get in the car and just like... Oh.
0: I love it. You're just looking for new places and vehicles for your ennui, where you just hop in and you're like, again. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. I also like the insight we have into your marriage, that it took 11 years. Yeah, it sinks, in, it sinks in occasionally. <laughs> it was, eventually it sunk in. Yes. We can't characterise that as quick on the yep. uptake. I'm sorry. Yes, yes, we right, just
1: right. can't. So what excites you as a reader? Mostly, you know, mostly nonfiction these days. Um, and so, like, uh, spring break with my family, I went through David Hodge's recent books. He's a nonfiction writer, writes about pop culture and history. So, he's a book about um, the early days of the folk scene, Joan Baez and Bob Dylan. And it's not my kind of music, really. I like sort of later Bob Dylan. Um, but it's about a cool moment when this new sort of form is coming into being in New York. Uh, positively Forestry, Street, I recommend that. And then I went to his book about um, Billy Strayhorn, jazz guy, who wrote a lot of Duke Ellington's uh, stuff and didn't get credit. And I realized that they're both books about New York, <laughs> about, about New York also, but also about being a, a creative and creative person in New York and writing and making art in that, in that kind of crazy city. Um, I I'll, I'll always often recommend uh, Patrick Radden Keefe, Empire of Pain, um, Say Nothing, uh, great nonfiction writer, and, and David Grant has a new book called The Wager, so mostly nonfiction these days. Did you listen to Radden Cave's podcast
0: about winds of change?
1: Not yet, no. I, yeah. You're in treat.
0: It's really good. His books are great, but that podcast is sensational. Liz is in Burnside, and she asks about the key idea you explore with your readers in Harlem Shuffle and Underground Railroad about black Americans rising above the alienation they experience from their own country.
1: Does that happen in my book or in real life? She seems to suggest that you're pointing to it in real life, <laughs> yes. Um, well, I mean, uh, I'm not sure about that. I mean, I think definitely... Both Underground and Nickel Boys are animated by Hope. You know, Cora in Underground has to believe that there's a, a place of freedom, even if she's never been off the plantation, or else why does she leave? And so um, that's rising above her terrible circumstances. Um, the Boys and the Nickel Boys have to believe that there's a place of safety beyond this hell, or else, you know, they, they'd have to give themselves completely to despair. So... Um, And then the book before that is Zone One, which is an apocalypse novel. And the survivors have to believe that there's a a place of safety, a refuge in Maine, on a little farm or something where they can rebuild, or else why go on? And so um, uh, despite all the terrible things that happen in all those three books, there is that belief and hope um, that animates the characters' journeys, even if it's a delusion. Given how important
0: it is for you to kind of feel like you're embarking on new territory with a new book, keep yourself interested, keep yourself surprised, you are doing something unprecedented with for you with Ray Carney's story, which is that Harlem Shuffle is the first in a trilogy. And so you're kind of going to follow him over uh, kind of further capers, further heists, further decades of his life. Um, Uh, remember you saying in the past that often you know how your books are going to end quite early on and you're kind of working towards that point. Did you start Harlem Shuffle knowing how Ray's story
1: ends and
0: working backwards, or are you discovering new things?
1: Um, No, it's been a really incredible experience to find a new way of doing things, you know, 10 books in. So um, I knew what happened at the end of Harlem Shuffle before I started writing. You know, I am an outliner, and I was writing towards the end scene um, and if you read the book, you know, it starts in downtown and ends up downtown. And then, um, halfway through the book, I kept coming up with capers. And so I knew it would be two books. And then if you do two, might as well do three, just a rule of three. And so nine different capers, uh, and he's 30 in the first book and then 40 in the second book and then 50 something in the third book. And then once I started the second book, I was like, well, I got to figure out what the end of the third book is. So I'm writing towards that. And the occasion for that was watching um, Inception for the fifth time. And I hated it when I first saw it. And then I, I love it more and more each time. There's a bunch of heists in, in, that, in that movie. And it starts off, you know, planting the seeds of the final section in the first couple of minutes. And I was like, I can incept my own book. And so um, because Harlem Shuffle was going to copy editors, I could, like, plan the third book And then plant seeds of that in the first book. Um, And then, of course, writing the second and third, I I sort of know, you know, some things and um, planting seeds for the third book and the second book. So it's just really cool to have a new way of doing things, you know, tracking somebody over 30 years in their life. Um, His kids are one or two in the first book, and then they're in high school and college, and then they're gone in the third book. And and, of course, the city is also going through various ups and downs of the same way that Carney is. So it's just a really, you know, really cool project.
0: It doesn't have to be three. Some people do a series of seven. You know, you could The seventh book could be Carney graduating wizarding school, and then you're set.
1: There, there's there's some, you know, some limitations about some of the physical activity once you get into the, you know, the later well, you're years. You're not a good fence. When Pepper, you, you know, definitely getting up there by the third book. I thought I asked
0: Carlson just as a slight indulgence if he would mind reading us a little bit of the second book in the trilogy, Crook Manifesto, before we let him go for the session. So, And I
1: would love to. Yeah, so it's the Pepper section. Pepper um, uh, is important in the first book, and then there are three stories in the second one, and I thought maybe Pepper should have his own adventure, so Pepper gets his own caper. with um, In this section... He needs some information from a a Harlem drug dealer named Quincy Black. And his way of getting into the townhouse is by Roscoe Pope, who's like a Richard Pryor type character, a comedian who's sort of rising. And uh, Roscoe Pope takes Pepper to see Quincy Black. Quincy Black opened the door decked out in a brown corduroy trousers and a white silk shirt embroidered with tiger heads. He was younger than Pepper had imagined, slim and long-limbed, with plucked eyebrows and a pencil mustache. He gushed, Roscoe, you look great, congratulations. Pope smiled, for what? For all of it, brother, all of it. Pepper and Pope stepped into the vestibule. Quincy gave Pepper a once-over. I'm Pepper. Good to meet you, brother. He pointed to the low bamboo rack by the foot of the stairwell. They go there. Pope was acquainted with the house rules and bent down to take off his sneakers. He signaled for Pepper to join him. Yet Pepper did not remove his shoes. He was thinking about the patches of light on the polished banisters, uh, the freshly vacuumed hallway runner, staff. How many people did Quincy employ to keep up the place, and where were they now? Quincy looked at Pepper's black shoes and said, Thanks, brother, as if Pepper had heeded his request, which he had not. Quincy added, In Oriental cultures, it's part of the arrangement between host and guest. Yet Pepper did not remove his shoes. A large man emerged from the back of the townhouse, tiny-headed and round-bellied like a ten-pin, lumbering from the kitchen, he wiped his left hand on his yellow apron and peered down the hall at them, taking the measure of the situation. His other hand held a butcher knife. Cartoon salt and pepper shakers cavorted across the body of the apron. Yet Pepper did not, did not remove his shoes. It was not Pepper's intention to be difficult, it was a matter of personal principle. Socks were holy. To straits and squares the criminal world was defined by chaotic forces, the violent and the unruly, the reprehensible and the forbidden. But Pepper governed his own little corner through iron rules and logic, and if asked to explain his system, don't work with dope heads, never knock over a bank on a Tuesday, he could do so, though no one ever asked. His disproportionate affection for socks, however, was idiosyncratic and belonged to the realm of the unsayable, like the formula of love or the final name of God. His appreciation took root in the freezing Newark mornings of his childhood. Cotton swallowed around his feet, no matter how threadbare, allowed him to face the mirthless cold. In the Pacific theater during the war, he came to respect and revere fresh, dry pears as a ward against trench foot, parasites, and myriad fungal depredations. The first thing he did when he got back to the Green Valley Motor Lodge after the botched McCarran job was to peel off his blood-soaked footwear. He didn't feel human again until he put on a new pair of cotton poly socks. People were often disappointing, A fine pair of socks seldom so. They were not to be be displayed casually at a stranger's demand. He slept at them, only took them off to bathe or make love, although on two occasions they had been cut off by emergency room personnel while he lay unconscious. At this moment, he was not making love, and the highlight of his day so far had been a long, hot shower. No, he could not stoop or bend in the front hallway of Quincy Black's townhouse, it was impossible. Thanks, guys.
0: Book Manifesto comes out in July, uh, but Harlem Shuffle is out now, as uh, Colson's many other books available at the Glee Books Bookshop out there. Go and buy multiple copies of each of them. Uh, Colson's very happy to sign them, and please join me in thanking, once again, the Remarkable... Thank you, Michael. Thank you, guys.
1: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.